Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, alongside none, well, alongside nobody today. John is not on the show today, but I'll tell you who is. Chris Irvin, author of the new Keto Answers book. He co-authored it with Dr. Anthony Gustin, who's been on this show before. Uh, Chris is a nutritionist, and you know what? One of the really cool things that he had to say is that your high LDL levels don't actually cause your heart disease. Also, nutritional cholesterol does not necessarily translate to blood cholesterol. Uh, and 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 here is here is why. So you have this to look forward to. LDL, one of the unique things that LDL does is that it will actually travel to the site of damage that we have. So say in our blood vessels, we have some damage that occurs. Well, LDL will travel to that site of damage and it will help repair it through using cholesterol and, and other components that are carried on the LDL molecule. So, you know, what happens is, is if there's a lot of damage in someone's body, then you're going to see a lot, a high amount of LDL. But viewing LDL cholesterol as the bad guy here would, would kind of be the same thing as like, you know, you come home, your house is on fire and there's firemen there and you blame the firemen for, right. for, for the fire, right? right? So like wherever firemen go, there's a fire, uh, firemen yeah. are causing fires. So that's, uh, unless you're talking about the 90s exactly. film backdraft, it's not necessarily accurate. <laughs> So we're going to talk to you in a second here about all things you've ever wanted to know about the ketogenic diet. Chris is very, very knowledgeable, including with some bombshells about the differences between keto and Atkins and and really what you need to be focus on, focusing on if you want to try keto. And you know what? Without John here, uh, why do I sound Canadian? Without John here, what is, uh, what is the point? I mean, we could talk about things like uh, there's a new. Oh, I'll tell you what. We'll do this, and then we'll talk, and then we'll get to to Chris Irvin. Uh, there is a new trend in Japan that is super expensive, ultra premium toilet paper. It's five dollars for a single roll of toilet paper. It all started a few years ago when the owner of a family run paper company was troubled by sensitive skin and wanted to find a solution. So he changed the manufacturing process and produced toilet paper that was so much softer. Uh, they call it usagi, which means rabbit. It is three-ply, and it is so fragile, they have to roll it by hand. One roll of the Rabbit brand toilet paper is about $5, which is roughly the price of 12 regular rolls. And that's the that's the cheap option. A gift box of eight artisan toilet paper rolls from their luxury line will set you back $100. Uh, it's a great birthday. They say it's a great birthday or thank you gift or wedding gift. Can you imagine getting toilet paper for your birthday? Uh, that would be That would be ridiculous. Anyway... Uh, that's a fun new trend out there. So uh, without further ado, I had to give you some IFYL before we got into this. Uh, without further ado, here is Chris Irvin, author of the book Keto Answers with everything, literally all of your ketogenic diet answers. Chris Irvin, author, a co-author of the new book Keto Answers with Anthony Gustin, who has uh, who's been on the show before. So Chris Irvin, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, hop on and chat today. Yeah. Uh, so fans of the show know that uh, the ketogenic diet and I have a long relationship, and I love it. Your new book, Keto Answers, is it's a uh, how do I put this? It is a hearty tome. It is it's a, it's a thick book. It is, um, but it is is chock full of really useful, great information uh, on the ketogenic diet. So first of all, thank you for writing it. Uh, but secondly, wh why did you feel like we needed this book? Yeah, well, appreciate the, uh, the kind words there too. Um, yeah, you know, me and Dr. Gustin, we sat down, it was about a year ago from the time this book came out last month. And we just, we sat down and we were talking about how, you know, between, 
um, what we see on at perfect keto and, and the things that we see on our social media, we just see the same questions coming up over and over again. Um, it seems like there's a lot of people out there who are asking very, uh, very common, similar questions about the ketogenic diet, but they're not able to find their answers out there. So we really wanted to put together a comprehensive guide that would answer all of the questions that somebody has about a ketogenic diet and, and put it all into a single place. You know, I think one of the problems today with the internet is that uh, it's hard to know if a source is credible when you're Googling, right, you know, your right. question. And um, that was kind of a big thing for us is that we wanted to put together one source so we could, you know, have people say, well, if we trust, uh, you know, me and Dr. Gustin, then we know that we can trust the information in this book and we can go get all of our questions answered in this book. So uh, that was kind of the main thing is just trying to clear up a lot of the confusion and then like I said addressing those those common questions so the way we actually went about uh, creating the book which I think is is kind of unique and it kind of talks tells the story about why it's created in the way it is so for anybody who hasn't checked it out we put this get this book together in a question answer format. So, um, you know, the, if, as you progress through the book, there's 268 questions and each question is labeled. And then, uh, the answer, you know, a lot of the questions have a short answer and then, uh, most of them will have a big long answer afterwards. So, uh, what we did was, is we sat down with people who were at different stages of their ketogenic diet. So we, you know, interviewed people who were thinking about starting keto, they're brand new to the diet. And then, you know, mm. people have been following it for maybe four months and then people have been following it for a couple of years. Right. And we, we tried to establish what the natural flow of questions that somebody has when they're on the diet. So, you know, if somebody starts the ketogenic diet and their question is, um, you know, are carbohydrates bad for me? Uh, and once they get that question answered, what is the next logical question that they have from there? Maybe it's, okay, well, what about fruit or what about this? So that's right. kind of the way that we structured this book is in a way that, you know, you could read it from front to back. Uh, and get everything that you need to know about the diet, but you can also, you know, use it as an encyclopedia where you can look up your question in the back of the book and then go find your answer. Right. I mean, I, 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 I found that, um, that, uh, people who are, who are doing the ketogenic diet, uh, or, or have sort of gotten into it in the, in the later stages do it in so many different ways. And, and a lot of nutritionists who, do, who aren't all in on keto like their big pushback is I can't get behind any any diet that doesn't involve fruit because they see <laughs> fruit as this vitamin rich thing and and because because glycemic index is so important for the ketogenic diet and because keeping your blood sugar low so that you stay in a state of ketosis is is foundational uh fruit is oh, most fruit is out except for low glycemic fruits like berries um mm-hmm. Um, before we yeah. get into in, into some of that stuff, I, I, what what is the most common question that you guys get about about the ketogenic diet? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I think the most common question that I've been seeing lately. So you know, I've been doing you know research and education in the keto space for a little bit over four years now, and I've seen some changes in what the most common questions are. You know, there's been trends that I've seen o- over the last four years, but. Right now, and I think it's because of the uh, the increase in popularity of the carnivore right. diet, the biggest question is protein intake. Right. Um, you know, people are very, you know, whether it's people who are concerned about eating too much protein or people who are starting to hear that maybe they should have more protein to uh, get closer to achieving their body composition goals, but they're concerned about it because, you know, you look on the internet and the, and the answers are just all over the place. So I think right now that that's the big one is people are, are really curious about protein. You know, can, is do I need to really restrict? Restricted on a ketogenic diet, can I have you know more than what the tra- traditional twenty percent recommendation is? Um, that's that's the big one right now. 
for those of you, let's just do a, a quick recap. So the ketogenic diet isn't a very low-carb diat, high-fat mm-hmm. diet. The whole point is to get you, the, the definition of it is to eat foods that keep you in what's called a state of ketosis, which means mm-hmm. that your blood ketones are above 0.5 millimolars per liter uh, in your body. That's, that means you're in ketosis, which means that your body is burning, essentially burning fat for fuel. Um, mm-hmm. Fat gets broken down into ketones, and those ketones can power your cells, and that's, that's the key to it. Um, and, and in order to do that, get into what's called nutritional instead of fasted ketosis, you have to eat a diet that is 70, 75% fat, uh, even up to 80% fat. Um, and that can come in the, in a lot of different forms, but, um, uh, you know, the, the best healthy fats that we talk about all the time are, uh, are olive oil and, and it's, it's percentage of your calories. So mm-hmm. olive oil, avocado, et cetera. Um, which you'd be surprised how little bit, how little fat you actually need to get uh, to get a good amount of calories for it. That's the other nice thing about it is that fat is obviously very calorically dense, um, uh, and then and then uh, a good a good amount of protein, uh, under twenty percent of protein, and then a small percentage, five percent or less of uh, of your macros need to come from from carbohydrates. Just just a quick primer for the folks. At home. Well, I would you know I, uh, I would maybe push back just a little bit on that. So this this is kind of something that um, have changed changed my opinion on over the last couple of years after kind of looking more into the mechanisms and, and things like that. So I think one of the common misconceptions about a ketogenic diet is that you do have to be in that high fat range to get into ketosis. And okay. I think this, this kind of understanding comes from, um, you know, people think when they, when they learn how ketones are produced, they're produced from the breakdown of fat. Um, people think that, you know, eating fat will increase your ketone production or get you into a state of ketosis. And, um, actually the, the only dietary fat that you can consume that actually will be converted into ketones is MCTs. But besides that, that, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's kind of, yeah, it was one of the things I didn't know this the first couple of years that I was studying keto as well, but the ketones that are produced in your body with the exception of MCTs, um, those are coming from the breakdown of stored body fat. So, um, the fat that you're eating in your diet, that's more of what's being used for just energy in general. Um, you know, also structural components of your cells and things like that. Um, but it's not a significant contributor to uh, ketone production. And that's just because of the way, um, you know, when we consume dietary fat, they get packaged onto uh, chylomicrons, which is, you know, they're used to um, disperse throughout the body. And those have a preferential, um, they have a preference to go towards like our muscle cells and, and different places in the body to be used for energy. And then they kind of go to the liver at the end where they're they're kind of disposed of. And at that point, there's not many, much fat left um, to be used for ketone production. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of one of the things that's changed my mind. And, and something we talk a lot about a lot in the book is that you know, the ketogenic diet does not necessarily have to be as high fat as what's been traditionally recommended. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that what one thing to remember is that that traditional macronutrient ratio that you talk about the, you know, 20% of your calories from protein and, uh, 70 to 75% plus from fat, uh, that was for epilepsy and, and pediatric epilepsy. And, you know, that's a little bit different for why, you know, some of us might be following the diet. Right. So, um, I always kind of tell people, I don't really like to make a blanket statement on, um, on protein and, and fat recommendations on keto because it really just depends on what your goal is. You know, for somebody who is doing maybe a therapeutic ketosis and trying to, uh, you know, trying to use it for cancer or something like that, they're probably going to have a much different macronutrient ratio compared to maybe somebody who's trying to optimize their body composition, for instance. So, um, it, it's kind of one of those things where you really have to tailor that according to your goals. That's okay. Well, let, let, then let's get, cause when I got into the ketogenic diet, if, if, if the ketogenic diet was a pyramid scheme, I would be making a ton of money right now. 
because I got in early. <laughs> Right, like I started doing yeah. it. We started doing it when it was sort of a, this weird, outlandish thing, and it has gotten extremely popular popular over the last mm -hmm. few years, um, and and very yeah. quickly. And so when I started doing it, there was the Johns Hopkins version, which is the um, mm -hmm. original 1920s version for uh, pediatric epilepsy that did mm -hmm. not respond to chemical treatment or, or you know uh, pharmaceutical treatment, and also for uh, diabetes uh, for people. Um, it was also a diabetes treatment. Yeah, I think it, it same Johns Hopkins development um so that that was it it was it was those macronutrients so obviously the amount of attention and research on the ketogenic diet has increased exponentially in the last five years uh and and so that this is uh, the only variant i ever heard prior to this prior to you dropping this bomb on me right now uh, <laughs> was that the amount percentage of protein um could go up if your uh, if your resistance extra, if your resistance training justified it, so uh, otherwise, like like so, you have somebody who's uh, as um, as Doctor D'Agostino puts it, someone who's metabolically elite, like uh, like a like The Rock, for example, mm -hmm. who whose body can absorb a lot of protein without going into gluconeogenesis, which is the breakdown of protein into sugar. Uh, then you'd be okay, but if you were more sedentary. Or you were not doing a lot of resistance training, then uh, increased protein meant increased blood sugar. Can I drop another bomb on you? Oh gosh! Quick? Oh my gosh! No. <laughs> Are you, you going to say gluconeogenesis is an on-demand process and is not dependent on the amount of protein in your diet? In a way, um, okay. I don't fully agree with that statement, but um, you know, there, there's it, it really depends on on where you're at and and how metabolically flexible you are. So you you're definitely right when you say that. Um, that, you know, somebody who is a little bit more, you know, superior with their metabolic flexibility is going to be able to better handle some protein compared to somebody who let's say is extremely insulin resistant. Um, but it does appear that you, this process of gluconeogenesis is something that is more demand driven and is less supply driven. And when we look at studies that look at like protein overfeeding, we see that really the only populations that we see any sort of significant increase in glucose production from a massive protein overfeeding is somebody who is like a type two diabetic who is extremely insulin resistant. Um, but even in the case of those people, some of the studies that I've looked at where they fed them, you know, 50 to hundred grams of protein at a time, um, it's still pretty, pretty minor increase in blood glu glucose from that. So, you know, it appears that this process is something that, and, and to, to kind of clear the air on that too, I think a lot of people, because of, you know, the thought that we, we need to be in ketosis all the time and that increasing in blood sugar or increases in blood sugar is bad. This process of gluconeogenesis, um, people often fear it. And I think it's important to understand that it's, it's a very important process that we, we actually have to have. So there's, you know, certain cells we talk about when you're on a ketogenic diet, you're switching your primary fuel source from glucose to fat and ketones. But, um, there's actually certain cells in the body that aren't able to use fat and ketones for energy. So one of the examples of that is like our red blood cells are only able to use glucose for fuel. Oh. And there's even, you know, certain portions of the brain that have to rely on glucose for fuel. But the beautiful thing is that because of this process of gluconeogenesis, we don't have to eat the carbs to get that glucose. We can actually produce it uh, through this process. So, um, but you know, what we're starting to see as we, we look into some of these protein overfeeding studies is that, you know, this thought that if we have too much protein that we're going to, you know, kick ourselves out of ketosis, it just doesn't really hold up unless we really start looking at people who are maybe on the very extreme end of being like metabolically inflexible and, and extremely insulin resistant. 
So then, so then, what should we be eating? So then, uh, the, if 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 the fat that we're if dietary fat, like we just talked about earlier, the healthy fats of olive oil and 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 uh, avocado, etc., uh, don't actually get metabolized into ketones. Only medium chain triglycerides. And for those of you who don't know, that's MCT oil is a, it's generally derived from uh, coconut oil, and it mm-hmm. is the most basic form of uh, of 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 fat that you can break down. So MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, very easy. For your body, it's more or less flavorless. It has a nice umami, but it's uh, it it is um, yeah, it is it is really good bioavailable fat for for you to break down for energy. So, should we just be putting MCT oil in our coffee and and cooking with it? And is that the only source of fat we need, or is, what is the point of of our of counting our macros then? Yeah, so I think the big thing to think about is that um, so you know keto and the ketogenic diet. You know, while it's we talk about it as being a diet, you know, the state of ketosis is really just a metabolic state. And, uh-huh. you know, the way that ketosis occurs is that when we stop eating carbohydrates, our blood glucose lowers, our insulin levels lower, our pancreas secretes a glucagon, glucagon travels to our, it's, it's a hormone that, you know, tells our fat cells to release stored fat. And then the stored fat goes to our liver where it's converted to ketones. So, you know, really the most, the most important variable for just getting in ketosis is really just restricting carbohydrates. Now that doesn't mean that that's the the only important part about a diet, but it does mean for the single goal of getting in ketosis, that's you know really the most important thing to consider. Um, but where protein and fat really come in is is in what are the other things that they do. So we know that you know protein does a lot with uh, the structural components of our cells. It's very important in signaling for different processes to occur. Um, same thing with fat. Fat is a, a very potent energy source. Um, it also plays a really big role in you know hormone production, and it plays a really big role in also these structural components of our cells, uh, improving like our cell integrity and things like that. So. The, you know, kind of the way that I like to look at it is, is when we're, when we're kind of talking about macronutrients and everything, it, like I kind of mentioned at the beginning is it really is dependent on, you know, what your goal is. I think a general rule of thumb that we can say for everybody is that we should all not be over consuming carbohydrates for a long period of time. Right. But besides that, it re- there's really not a general blanket statement that we can say is this is the best approach. I think, you know, the, the important thing for people to do is, is to do some self-experimentation and find out, you know, for me, I've, I've been following keto for about four years now. And, um, I found over the, the course of the last four years that I really operate better when I am eating a whole food ketogenic diet where, uh, my, my protein intake is closer to, you know, 35 to 40% of my calories, which, you know, we'd probably consider closer to like a modified Atkins approach. Right. Um, and you know, I do better when, when my fat intake is a little bit lower. And when I say lower, you know, enough, the way that I look at fat is you can kind of view fat as a lever, you know, fat is something that we can adjust to balance our, um, our our total calorie intake in. So, you know, the, the importance of fat comes in that when we're following a ketogenic diet, we're completely removing a macronutrient group. You know, we're really, you're getting hardly any calories coming from carbohydrates. And, you know, while calorie restriction can have a lot of therapeutic benefits and a lot of health benefits, um, you know, there's a case to be made for not being in a calorie deficit for, you know, indefinitely. It's not something that we want to be doing all of the time. And that's really where fat can come in is that we can really adjust our fat intake based on what we're trying to do with our calories. So if we're trying to get our calories to being more of a, uh, in, in more of a surplus or closer to baseline, then that would be a time where we would increase our, our fat, for instance. And if we were trying to put ourselves in a calorie deficit, then that would be a great time to taper the fat back. Now, 
I, I what I'm what I'm hearing you say, I I I, I get that. And and if mm-hmm. so, but bottom line is, if if your if gluconeogenesis uh, or gluc- I, you pronounce it differently than I than I do. So I don't yeah, know. I always get I always get heck for that. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's fine. I just uh, it's uh, so if if, if <laughs> gluconeogenesis is that how you say it? gluconeogenesis? Anyway, if if that process, you know, I've been that, trying to. <laughs> You're good. Go ahead. If that process is on demand, the process that turns protein mm-hmm. into carbohydrates, and uh, the fat is just like you said, a lever that we use to adjust our caloric needs, adjust for our caloric needs, and we we mm-hmm. have uh, really restricted key, uh, carbohydrates down to you know fewer than twenty grams a day. Mm-hmm. Um, how how is keto different from Atkins then? Yeah, so couple couple different reasons. So, you know, one of the things that was wrong with the traditional Atkins approach was that there wasn't as much of a focus on fat intake. It was more of a focus on protein. So, you know, a lot of people who were following the Atkins approach really kind of fell into this low low fat, low uh, carb diet. And the problem with that is that protein is not a significant contributor to energy. You know, like I, I kind of mentioned earlier, glucose, fat, and ketones are really the three things that our body can use for energy. So when okay. we're not provide, you know, when we're not eating uh, a significant amount of fat, if we're eating a high protein, low fat, low carb diet, um, one, it's going to be very hard to get enough calories in. So a lot of these people are eating, you know, severely calorie restricted diets, uh, which, you know, for somebody who is extremely obese and that, that might be a really great way to experience some rapid weight loss. But over time, uh, that may, that may have some problems with your metabolism. You know, that, that may be a bit damaging if you're doing it for, for too long. Right. Um, so that's kind of the bigger thing here is that with a ketogenic diet, you are putting an emphasis on eating healthy dietary fats because, you know, when Atkins was coming out, it was, it was kind of really in that taboo time of like, you know, well, we, you know, this Atkins diet seems to work despite having meat, which at the time we kind of thought meat was a bad right. thing, which, you know, some people still do. Um, but we were really weren't sure about fat. You know, that was the real thing back then. So, you know, Atkins and, and the people that were following that were not making recommendations to, to eat a high fat diet because that would have been, you know, so far removed from what everybody thought at the time. Right, so right. I think that's really the big difference. And then, you know, also with, with Atkins, there's kind of a planned reintroduction phase of carbohydrates that, uh, you know, maybe you may also do on a ketogenic diet. Some people may do keto for a period of time and then transition out of it. But, uh, you know, the, the goal when starting a ketogenic diet isn't always to, you know, follow it for a set period of time and then reintroduce carbs like it was with Atkins. Got it. Um, so speaking of, you talked about, you know, the, the emphasis on, on, on meat and protein that, that Atkins mm-hmm. had, um, and, and some of the pushback, the old pushback on it, there is a, there is a resurgence, uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, plant-based diets are better for the environment. Uh, plant-based diets uh, are lower in saturated fat, which even when you're in ketosis is, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about it as much, but it's not like saturated fat is, is, is as good as the healthy fats we've talked about before. So, uh, two questions. One is, uh, should we be going, cause there is a plant there's, you can do vegan keto. It's extremely difficult. Um, mm-hmm. you basically, it's really hard to eat out. Um, but you can do vegan keto. Uh, however, uh, you know, you're, you're obviously you're giving up, you're giving up meat. Do we, is meat as unhealthy as some of these, especially this, there's a new weightlifting documentary on Netflix about, about, hmm. about power, uh, plant powered, I think it's called. Uh, yeah. Game changers. Is Game that the changers. One? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. and then, uh, you know, are they right? I mean, could you do a combination of being plant-based and keto or, or is that, is that more a function of transitioning because to be plant-based, you end up eating more whole foods? 
Okay. So yeah, this is a, it's a great, great conversation to have because I think that this is, is really important. And, and I'll preface this with saying that I am not somebody who is, uh, I'm not against plant-based or vegan diets, um, necessarily, but I do have some, some views, uh, that are a little bit non-conventional compared to kind of where we're at as a society today. So the first thing that I want to talk about kind of going back to what you said at the very beginning, when, when you mentioned the environment, I do want to touch on that for just a second, because um, there are a few misconceptions about that. Now, when we talk about, you know, uh, animal agriculture and its impact on the environment, you know, one of the the big study that most people reference to where they talk about the greenhouse gas emissions that come from animal agriculture. Um, the two things to point out about that is one that that's looking at, um, you know, some of the, the new animal agriculture feeding operations that we have where people are mass producing meat, um, in these farms where animals are treated very poorly, right. they're not fed the right animal or they're not fed the right food. Um, that's a really important thing to talk about. And I'll kind of mention why in a second on that. But the other thing to talk about there is that the researchers from that study that's so often referenced there have actually come back and since then said that they did have biases that kind of altered the data and the conclusions that they made from that study to um, sit, to kind of demonstrate that animal agriculture was a lot worse for the environment than what it actually is. Now, that doesn't mean that that, that type of animal agriculture doesn't have an environmental impact that can be negative, but it just means that it's not as severe as what was originally reported in that study. Um, and, and so then to go into the different types of animal agriculture, I think one thing that people don't realize is that you know, when you are buying meat uh, or you're really buying any food, you have an opportunity to vote with your dollars. 100%. And, you know, if, if you're going to a store and you're buying meat uh, that is, you know, coming from a, a concentrated feeding operation where they, you know, the they're not treating the animals properly. They're not living in their natural environment um, and they're, you know, mass producing them. Which is that but here's the deal. Uh, that's a lot of meat. That's that's a, a large percentage of of the agricultural process in the Western world. Well, not. It, it is if you're going to a you know a traditional grocery store and you're going to uh, you know if if you're maybe going to like a Walmart or something like that and buying your meat. But you know one of the benefits that you know and it does depend on where where you're at in uh, the United States and, and what you have uh, available to you. But when you talk about like buying um, beef from local farmers and local ranchers, uh, the environmental aspect of that it, it is a much different story. So sure. Um, you know, w w so one of the things that we found is that when you actually have animals that are living out in their natural environment and they're actually out, um, you know, they're feeding on grass, they're out trampling up the soil, um, they're actually when they are out trampling up the soil, they are opening up the soil to allow it to uh, sequester more greenhouse gases. So one of the things that we have found is that when we are doing proper animal agriculture, there's actually a net negative uh, greenhouse gas effect for these animals. And in addition to that, too, one of the biggest things about this is that when these animals are out living the way that they're supposed to, they're actually able to improve the quality of our soil, too, which, you know, because of the way um, and again, this isn't necessarily a knock on plant based diets, but one of the problem with uh, with the, you know, monocropping and, and mass producing uh, different plants and stuff is that we, we use a lot of pesticides and that really uh, is detrimental to the soil quality in the U.S. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. does have pretty, pretty poor soil quality. So when we start looking at like regenerative agriculture and, and shopping locally and getting your meat from local ranchers and farmers and stuff like that, uh, it's a much different conversation on when it comes to the environmental side of things. And I think that that's kind of an important thing to, to say is that, you know, you don't have to necessarily support the operations that are doing it poorly. You can support ones that are actually beneficial for the environment. 
that makes I mean that makes a lot of sense. So you know, to your point, I, I think that's true of but of any product you're buying. So if you're buying lettuce, go buying lettuce from a farmer's market is always going to be a better bet than buying lettuce from a chain grocery store in terms mm-hmm. of the amount of emissions associated with getting that that lettuce to you, the just the wear and tear on the environment and and the world of getting of getting that lettuce from from the ground, essentially the solar energy into your body. It's just a mm-hmm. much faster path and much better for, for the world in general. Um, but it's also, it's more expensive. And for some people, it, it is impractical when you have a lot more convenient solutions that are cheaper, easier to get to, uh, and and yeah, and have the same, you know, sort of nutritional impact on us. We all, we all, we all grab, uh, we all have, you know, we all grab what's convenient, and and that 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 can be hard. And again, uh, a lot of people's meat intake is coming from um, is coming from those big chain stores, like we talked about. So I think I think you make a good point. Like no matter whether you're doing plant based or or uh, or a meat based carnivorous diet, you need to if if the environment is a concern for you, and I think it should be, um, mm-hmm. if the environment is a concern for you, you need to be voting with your wallet how you how you consume because that's gonna that's gonna make a big difference. But the realities of meat consumption is there's more water used to make a pound of meat than there is to make a pound of, of grain. There's there there are some some it is more uh, biologically expensive. Right. Uh, well, <laughs> I, you know, I I will have to say I just I'm not not sure that I agree with that. I think that um, similar to the the conversation on the greenhouse gas effect, there's there's a lot of um, reports that have come out since a lot of these studies have come out that suggest that you know it, it's it's uh, a little bit more biologically taxing to do this kind of farming. That those numbers have been a little bit blown out of proportion and, and have been, you know, kind of statistically manipulated. And um, it is a bit, it's kind of one of those things where, and I'll say it, say it like this too, is that um, I don't really have a, a team that I'm on here. I'm not somebody that's pro this or pro that. I'm pro humans and I want right. humans to be, to be healthy and I want humans to do um, the best that's possible. But there are a lot of, uh, of agendas out there that will that you know will intentionally manipulate research in different ways i mean even when you look at you mentioned the documentary game changers that came out uh james cameron the the guy who put that documentary out he's somebody who has uh has a lot of influence and a lot of uh investments in different uh vegan vegetarian plant-based companies so Hmm. um it's kind of something to, to to take into consideration is that it's very hard to take a lot of these these things that people are saying at face value, like the water thing that you're talking about there. Um, that's, that's another one. And I don't have the exact, uh, statistics to, to go through and kind of debunk that in the same way that I did the greenhouse gas. But that is another one that has been since then looked at and seen that that's been a little bit blown out of proportion as well. Um, so again, I think, I think the one thing though, that we can agree on here is that, uh, regardless of what you're doing with your diet, there's a right and a wrong way to do it. And I think, you know, shopping locally, um, getting it from farms that are doing it the right way and, uh, you know, eating whole food diets, minimally processed is going to be the best way, regardless of whatever you're trying to do. If it's, if it's plant-based animal-based, whatever. And, uh, uh, just a quick note on water. Water is really important. If you live in an area that is, uh, going through a drought or, or a flood, it is, it is a significant thing to watch your consumption of, but in terms of the food supply, the water consumption for X, Y, or Z product uh, is I mean water is one of the most it is the most recycled element it's recycled naturally by the globe so that animal that's drinking a lot of water is also excreting the water uh, you know, with its waste that water is ev- which is then evaporating and then going right back into the water table so 
um, it is again, it is recycled, even if even if it requires more quote unquote gallons to make. You just you do have to worry mm-hmm. about it if you are in a drought area like in the south, in the uh, American Southwest, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, yeah, that's fair. Fair. Um, that being that being said, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I I I cannot imagine. I know people do it. There are there are blogs, vegan keto blogs and stuff. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. The amount of restriction involved in be I I eat meat. Um, I I am a fan. <laughs> I, don't, I'm yeah. not, I don't really have a choice. So I so I I am into that. I I do understand do I do understand that process. But with meat comes a lot of you talked about hormone uh, hormone regulation that comes from fat comes a lot of cholesterol and there are a lot of uh, proper and misconceptions about cholesterol in our diet, mm-hmm. especially associated with eating meat that is higher in saturated fat. Uh, yeah. so how does that work with a ketogenic diet and, and how, if we have high cholesterol, how can we, uh, how can we, is it okay to go keto? Yeah. Great question. So, um, you know, I think another, another big thing to point out there too, is that, um, is kind of understanding how we have gotten to where we are today with our understandings of these things like saturated fat and cholesterol. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that we know is that a lot of these studies that are talking about you know, saturated fat, animal products, uh, cholesterol being harmful to our health. These are are more epidemiological studies that um, were never intended to be used to make specific dietary recommendations, but rather intended to determine correlations that we could use to further dive in and study. And and unfortunately, we we didn't do that when we got a lot of these uh, observational studies. So, you know, a good way to look at this for people who don't know how these studies work is that um, take saturated fat, for instance, you, you take, so take a study that says may, maybe you go online and, uh, you see an article that says saturated fat, uh, causes an X percent increase in uh, prostate cancer, risk of prostate cancer. And then you go in and you look at the study and basically what they do in these types of studies is, is they follow people, uh, for a set period of time. So maybe there's, you know, 200 men that they follow for, uh, just making up numbers here, six months and, or maybe they follow them for six years and they say, you know, at the end of it, they, they see how many people in the, this group of people were diagnosed with prostate cancer. And then they ask these people very specific dietary questions. And in the case of the studies that demonstrate that, you know, saturated fat is poor for our health, they'll ask questions like, well, do you eat hamburgers or, you know, are you eating, um, steaks or, or, you know, different things like that. And, you know, if, a great percent, let's say 80% of the people who have prostate cancer say that they eat hamburgers, then the report comes out that saturated fat increases your risk of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. But the problems with these types of studies is they fail to take into consideration a lot of different things. Like, you know, in the, in the case of the example that I just gave, well, were these people having the bun with their burger? Were they eating a lot of processed carbohydrates in conjunction with that meat intake? And I think that's that's the important thing to remember is that our body metabolizes things differently depending mm-hmm. on what we're consuming them with. So, um, and, and in the conversation of cholesterol too, one of the the big things to point out is that, you know, the the cholesterol that we eat uh, does not correlate with the cholesterol levels in our body. So, Ooh, uh, when you good. talk about measuring your your blood cholesterol levels, uh, a very very small portion of your blood cholesterol levels comes from cholesterol found in your diet. Uh, the majority of that cholesterol is coming from uh, production in your body. So the question is, 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 you know, why is this cholesterol being produced? You know, what, why, why does somebody who has an increased or a very high level of cholesterol, 
um, you know, why does it, why is it there? And, and this is kind of brings up the conversation of like LDL cholesterol. So you hear everybody talk about LDL and they say, well, you know, one of the things we know is that people who have cardiovascular disease, they tend to, to report having very high levels of LDL cholesterol. Well, if you actually start and, you know, so what the natural response to that is, is, okay, well, LDL cholesterol must be bad for your heart. And and that's what we assumed for a long period of time. Um, But if you look and and you see what LDL cholesterol actually does for the body, Uh you can understand it a little bit differently. So, you know, LDL cholesterol, you know, LDL and and any cholesterol molecule, what it does is it, it carries fat around the body. So uh, when you are eating a diet that is promoting fat burning, you're going to see an increase in some of your uh, cholesterol levels because, you know, we have to transport that fat throughout the body. It's being used as a primary energy source. So um, you are going to see an increase in some of those levels. But LDL, one of the unique things that LDL does is that it will actually travel to the site of damage that we have. So say in our blood vessels, we have some damage that occurs. Well, LDL will travel to that site of damage and it will help repair it through using cholesterol and other components that are carried on the LDL molecule. So, you know, what happens is, is if there's a lot of damage in someone's body, then you're going to see a lot, a high amount of LDL. But viewing LDL cholesterol as the bad guy here would, would kind of be the same thing as like, you know, you come home, your house is on fire and there's firemen there and you blame the firemen for, right. for, for the fire, right? right? So and wherever firemen go, there's a fire, uh, firemen yeah. are causing fires. So that's, uh, unless you're talking about the 90s exactly. backdraft, it's not necessarily accurate. <laughs> Right, right. So um, the the better question should be, well, what's causing the damage? And and this is something that was was uh, brilliantly laid out for me recently. Uh, actually, it was about a year ago. I was at Low Carb Houston, um, where it was uh, put on by Dr. Nadir Ali, who is a cardiologist. Um, you know, kind of a very he was formerly a very traditional cardiologist, recommending low fat diets, right, and now right, right. he had you know, transition to actually recommending a ketogenic diet and, and, you know, high fat dieting for cardiovascular disease. And, um, and there was a ton of cardiologists at, at, they were, you know, following the same kind of storyline as him. And, um, one of the people, not a cardiologist, there was, uh, Ivor Cummings, which if, if you guys, if you're not familiar with him, he's, um, just a really brilliant, uh, he, his brand is the fat emperor and he, he's just one of the smartest guys when it comes to like his understanding and explanations of cholesterol. And he talks about how, you know, like our blood vessels, for instance, in, in the example that I was giving a second ago, we have this protective layer called the glycocalyx. And the glycocalyx is basically like these hair-like structures that are, um, that are you know, kind of protecting our blood vessels from, from having any damage occur. And what he showed in his presentation was that when we consume a high-carbohydrate meal, um, one, we drive up inflammation, but two, we actually completely damage and almost wipe out that glycocalyx and it takes hours and, and I forget the exact amount of time, but it takes hours for our body to regenerate and repair this. Hmm. And during that time when that protective layer is gone, that is actually when LDL is able to, it can kind of go in and it can cause more of a problem and cause more of a damage. So, um, the, the kind of the thought here is that, if we're not consuming a, a high carbohydrate, high processed carbohydrate diet or a diet that is promoting a lot of inflammation, then this concern with cholesterol and saturated fat and everything isn't quite as warranted. So um, it's just kind of knowing that there's it, it really depends on the full gamut of your diet. Everything is not kind of cut and dry and can't be looked at in a vacuum. You know, there's there's a lot of other components that have to be taken into consideration. And, um, you know, on a ketogenic diet, we just know that 
it's your body's behaving a lot differently. And, um, you know, that's the reason why we're seeing people being able to eat high amounts of saturated fat, right. high amounts of red meat and not seeing the health health, you know, problems that we would traditionally assume that they would. Right. That we would assume based on those correlative studies. Right. Correct. So, uh, so my mom, uh, has been in ketosis for a while, uh, was prescribed statins because of, mm-hmm. of, um, because of, uh, you know, the, the kind of stuff we were just talking about. Uh, and ever since she started taking statins, she's had a hard time getting her ketones up above like a 0.3. Mm-hmm. Um, have you noticed that there, is, is there something about the way statins work that keep our, uh, that keep us from being able to get into ketosis? And I know obviously like this needs to be done on a case by case basis with the, uh, with the conversation with your doctor, but if you want to get, can statins and, and the ketogenic diet coexist? So I'm pulling this from a, the back portion of my brain here. Um, I, I was at a conference about a year ago and, um, I had somebody, uh, there was a doctor who actually talked about this and I believe, um, that when you take a statin, uh, you actually, you inhibit an enzyme that is very important in the, um, the ketone production or ketogenesis pathway. Okay. Um, I believe the enzyme is HMG CoA. Oh, of um, course. That's, yeah. That's, we all know HMG CoA. That's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's the guy that was in, uh, he was in one of the Avenger movies. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so that's, I believe is the, no, that's the... Benedict Cumberpatch. I'm sorry. I got this confused. <laughs> HMG CoA is an enzyme that Benedict Cumberpatch is a British actor. My mistake. Yeah. Keep going. I was wondering where you're going with that, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so HMG CoA is, uh, I believe is the one that, uh, I believe the statins inhibit. So it actually will, um, I don't know if it completely blunts or if it just reduces uh, your ability to produce ketones. And, um, and that's not something that I can say with a hundred percent confidence, but that is something that I was, was told at one point and I haven't looked into it a ton yet. Um, but even, you know, while we're on the topic of statins, I do have to say that that is, is another pro that is another really, uh, misunderstood drug and something that has been, um, it kind of opens a bigger conversation of some of the, the difficulties that we have currently in the pharmaceutical industry. Right. But, um, if you, you know, again, I was, I was at another conference where there were some cardiologists breaking hey, this, this down. This is a great time to do a quick disclaimer. Do not take, do not stop taking medication that's been prescribed for, by by a doctor unless you yes. talk to a doc, a medical doctor about this. Uh, while while this stuff is great and this is this is some bleeding edge science, I don't want people to self experiment with prescription drugs based on this. So keep going. Yes. So I am, I am not a doctor. Yeah. So, uh, uh, this is all based on just uh, personal research here. So yeah, just, um, definitely want to speak with a practitioner before you, you know, you do anything. And, and like I said, I'm not going to make recommendations on this, but, um, but one of the things that we see when we, when you look at say like Lipitor, so Lipitor is one of like the most common statins, um, it was, I think it was one of maybe the first ones that came to market and, yeah. uh, you know, they talk about these, these studies where they use Lipitor and it, it causes, you know, something like a 30, 40, 50% reduction in cardiovascular incidence risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you actually go and you break, and this isn't something that I'm able to do because I was horrible at stats in grad school. So it was not something that I was able to, to break down, but, um, there was a statistician at a conference recently who actually went through the raw data of this study and it was something like, if you actually looked at the numbers, it was the statins make a 1% difference in 1% of the people that they that take them when you actually talk about reducing your, your risk of cardiovascular incidence. Mm. Now, 
That doesn't mean the car, that statins don't work because statins do work. What statins do is they prevent your body from producing cholesterol. So that it does that. If you take a statin, your cholesterol levels will go down. Now, the problem with that, based on kind of what I just said a few minutes ago, is that right. we don't know that lower cholesterol is necessarily better. Now, if you're talking about somebody who doesn't change anything else about their diet, maybe they continue eating a lot of processed carbohydrates, so they have mm. a lot of inflammation then yeah, maybe lowering cholesterol a little bit is going to prevent the cholesterol from being able to cause some damage in the body. Um, but we haven't seen that, that actually pan out in, in improving somebody's lifespan. Now, mm. you know, so what we see here is that, um, this data has been a little bit blown up because, you know, there's, a, there's these, you know, Lipitor or, or statins is one of the biggest, um, the most financially profiting aspects of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, I forget how many billions, trillions of dollars, uh, come in through, through the prescription of statins, but it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you're talking doctors who are uh, being financially incentivized to put people on statins, not with an understanding of how these things are working, but just based off of, uh, if your blood numbers fall in this range, we, you know, it's an, if then that type of approach to right. prescribing these things. And, and that's not to say that I don't think statins have value. Um, but I do think that they're used in the wrong way. I mean, um, re, you know, one, I'll make a book recommendation here for some people. There's a, there's a book that just came out a month ago called curable, um, by Travis Christofferson, who is one of my favorite authors. He, um, he talks about some of the hardships and of the farm or of the, uh, medical industry and, and, you know, why we are where we are with our, our medical care here in the United States. And, and he talks about this thing called this concept of basically financial orphan drugs, um, which are, right. you know, these drugs that have shown benefit in treating other conditions, but because there is not, um, any financial profit to basically, um, study these things, uh, in, in these other, these uses of these drugs in other conditions, the studies aren't happening. So, you know, one of the things that we know, one of the things that we speculate about statins is that statins could actually be great in cancer treatment because, you know, one of the things that a cancer cell will do is it will use cholesterol to uh, to strengthen the integrity of uh, the cell so it can become a little bit more resistant to some oh, of the wow. standard of care options. Yeah. So if we're able to, you know, reduce the amount of cholesterol and again, that doesn't mean that you have to reduce the amount of cholesterol in your diet, because remember, that's not really correlated, correlated with, with blood the, cholesterol. Right. Yeah. With your cholesterol levels. So if we can reduce the amount of cholesterol that our body is producing um, in, this, in the case of cancer, then that might be a really great use of a statin drug, but because all of the patents are kind of already taken up for statins, there's really, uh, there's no financial gain for any of these companies to study the use of a statin for this, for this, you know, use of, of treating cancer. So, uh, and that, you know, that's a tangent that we could, that's, you know, a completely different tangent. But the point of this is, is that, um, you know, statins are, aren't really what they've been promoted to be. And I think that we're going to start seeing that in the next few years, we're going to start seeing more research coming out showing that, um, you know, th this isn't providing the same benefit that we thought it is, especially when you consider the amount of people who aren't seeing any, you know, improvement in their longevity from taking this drug. Right, right. Which ultimately is like, is the point, right? Which we, we, we think you, you, what you've just, what you've just described basically is a cascade of, uh, correlation, correlated studies that we think will have a causative effect on our health. And when you really look at it, it doesn't necessarily do that in the way that we think it will. Um, you know, right. we, we talk about the, yeah. The so I mean, essentially it's, it's based on just a, a false misunderstanding of it. I mean, you know, it's, it's yes, statins, lower cholesterol and, um, but yeah, yes, cholesterol, cholesterol is there when, when, yeah. when there's heart disease, but it's not necessarily good that lowering your cholesterol level will imply that you will lower your chances of heart disease. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's where, 
Um, and, and there's definitely different camps of people. So I'll definitely tell anybody who wants to look more into this. Um, you should definitely study it a lot because this there's different camps of people that have different thoughts on this. But the the people who um, you know I've I've gone to a lot of different cardiovascular based conferences to hear different cardiologists talk about these things, and um, that's that's what makes the most sense to me in the research that I've done is that uh, I just don't think that it pans out. But you know I would encourage anybody to go out there and really dig into that. You know don't take what I'm saying at face value. It's uh, something that you should do your own research on and, and really find out uh, what's going on with that. You know, I think you, you bring up something interesting too, which is this sort of problem with the Western medical establishment and the lack of nutritional information that, that or nutritional training that doctors get. Because I found that the handful of MDs that are pro-keto uh, got there because they did their own, they did additional nutritional research and, mm -hmm. and not because of their medical school training which is yep. one of the reasons why so many doctors scratch their head when they hear about keto is that what what doctors are trained to do is identify a problem and then and then execute a series of scientifically uh, correlated treatment options that will that will respond that will fix the problem. They're not really well trained in a lot of prevention based on their on their traditional schooling. So these doctors that have embraced keto have generally speaking done a lot of the research on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where we get into this weird thing where cardiologists are saying, oh, this is dangerous, uh, while other doctors, including some cardiologists are saying, no, it's fine. Yeah. Well, you know, I can give you a really good story that I was, so I was at uh, low carb Denver last year and, um, or earlier this year, I guess it was. And, uh, Nina Tykoltz, which, um, for anybody who hasn't read her book, the big fat surprise, it's a great, um, breakdown of kind of how we got today, how we got to where we are today with our misunderstandings of fat and, 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 you know, saturated fat, fat intake, all of that. But I'll she was, a, I'll put a link to the big fat surprise in the show notes so you guys can check. Yeah, out. that's, yeah, it's a great one. I think people will, will love, but, um, yeah. So one of the stories that she told, she said she had a medical student that wrote into her and the medical student said that in their one weekend of nutrition training that they get during their medical program, which strike one, that's a huge problem that they're getting one weekend of nutrition training. Um, but in their one weekend of nutrition training, they were kind of going through the traditional U.S. dietary recommendations, which uh, definitely lean more towards being low fat. They lean more towards being, um, you know, plant based, you know, keeping meat out of it, uh, despite the fact that the evidence that they use doesn't really back it up. And in, in their reports, that is what they recommend. And this student was somebody who had been doing their own research. They had, they had been going out and, and studying and, and finding out that, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're being told wasn't true. The, the student approached the professor at the end of the class and said, you know, what is this? How are you guys, how are you making these recommendations? Have you not heard about the ketogenic diet? Have you not heard about low carb dieting? Mm. And the response that the doctor, the professor and, and doctor of this, pro, uh, this program said was, I know about the ketogenic diet. I actually follow it myself. I'm not allowed to talk about it wow. was the response that they were given. And I think that was the most powerful the diet. Thing that I the medical establishment doesn't want you to know about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's, you know, the the U.S. dietary recommendations that we have today don't promote um, this type of dieting. And right. it's not and this isn't, you know, I always try to say as a caveat that this is not me pointing a finger at doctors. Doctors are doing the best that they can. The right. system is what's broken. It's not doctors. I don't I don't think that doctors got into their field because they just want to financially, uh, you know, benefit from patients and they don't want to help anybody. That is that is, you know, there are people that believe that I don't believe that I think that doctors want to help people. Um, but a lot of them aren't in a position. I mean, you talk about this guy, 
he's saying he's not allowed to talk about this. This isn't that he is choosing not to. It is, you know, you're talking about his livelihood and his job being at risk. Right. Um, and, and that's a huge problem, you know, so that, that right there kind of tell, and you know, same thing going to different conferences. I, I, I remember one cardiologist telling me that, um, it makes him sick to know that he thinks that he may have been, um, he thinks that he may have killed a lot of his patients by putting them on low fats diets when they were dealing with cardiovascular disease and he didn't even know it. And, and I think that was another one of those powerful stories, just saying that like, you know, we have a lot of room to go and a lot of, a lot of research to do in this area. Um, but unfortunately with the way that the, that the system is set up right now, you know, there's, and this is something I I was at another listening to uh, Travis Christofferson speak at an event recently. Um, and I encourage people to check him out. He's somebody that is, has really has, he's an investigative journalist that has done some really incredible work. Um, he kind of talks about how this, this system just is, is set up to, uh, it's kind of set up for failure. I mean, there is no money to be gained in researching a ketogenic diet or fasting or, you know, the use of a cheap drug like statins or metformin for cancer or anything like that. So the research isn't happening. You know, where the money is going is, is the money is going towards, you know, studying the new pharmaceutical that is going to be extremely um, profitable. It's going to, you know, be a billion dollar industry. That's where the money is going towards in the research. There's no money to be made on not eating food and fasting or eating a whole food (laughs) diet, right? Like that research just isn't happening. And that's why, you know, some of these these, uh, organizations out there, like I know Nina Teicholz has an organization called the nutrition coalition. And, um, and I think that, uh, Travis Christofferson has a, a foundation that is, ta- um, I've, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but it's, uh, raising money to go towards metabolic research. Yeah. Um, those things are so important because right. if these people aren't doing that, that research dies and, it, yeah. and it, it's no longer able to help people. And, and then we end up kind of being stuck in this cycle that we're in currently yeah and, and you bring up such a good point like the the benefits of fa- i practice intermittent fasting regularly and i try to do mm-hmm. you know the the monk fast the the 72 hour fast every once in a mm-hmm. while um yeah. and i know uh dr d'agostino big fan of fasting he mm-hmm. he does a and and it, beyond the benefits of increasing your naturally occurring blood ketones um because that's that's ketones are designed uh, for us with the idea that we would we would be food insecure that we would be as a species we would uh, we would go through periods where we would have to find our food again or mm-hmm. where you know we would finish the elk that we killed and we'd have to go kill another elk and maybe you know there's a new hunter in the pack and he he missed his shot and so now we don't get elk meat for another few days mm-hmm. point being that's what ketones are designed for that's that's and so when you fast, you actually get yourself into that natural state of eating once a day or or um, or of incre- increasing your body's natural ketone level so that you can um, that you can perform and, and hunt that quote unquote next elk. Um, so I, I, I use an app called uh, what is what is it called? It's called Zero. Um, mm. And it, it times my fast for me. I'll put a link to where to get to, to that in the show notes. It's a, I have an iPhone, so I'll put the iPhone link to it. But zero is great. It times your fast and then times your time uh, since your fast and uh, helps you stay focused on and gives you little alerts and, and stuff to, mm-hmm. to help you stay focused on your fasting. So I, I agree with that. We could spend a lot of time talking about the benefits of fasting, but uh, mm-hmm. I think I think if you're into, interested in fasting, we should either do another show about that or uh, you guys can just check out. There's a lot of resources built into that app that I just mentioned. Um, yeah. You've talked a lot today, though, about um, about whole foods, yeah, and uh, and the idea of a whole food diet. And and 
uh, I think maybe you tweeted or maybe Dr. Gustin tweeted something about how any transition it, it was in it was in reference, I believe, to the um, game changer uh, game changer documentary. Was it anybody that switches to a whole food diet is going to see a metabolic benefit? Um, mm-hmm. when, like I yeah. like I mentioned earlier, when I started the ketogenic diet, uh, it it was. It was a wasteland. It was it was a hundred year old diet that a handful of people were trying. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you were starting to research it. D'Agostino was researching it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the boom that it is now. And I know you have a connection to Perfect Keto, which is a keto supplement uh, company that also makes some extra keto foods. But as it gains in popularity, one of the side effects is a lot of people are showing up with processed ketogenic foods. So when I started. Yep the ketogenic diet was necessarily a whole food diet because that was the only way to get the macros that you were looking for. Uh, it made it really hard, but it also meant that I was eating whole foods. I was eating, I was eating spinach and olive oil and meat. I was not, there was no processed foods as the ketogenic diet grows in popularity. We're seeing those processed foods. Uh, is that going to, are we going to start to see a drop off in the benefits of this diet because, uh, processed food is by nature so bad? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this, it's such a big problem and, and you laid it out perfectly there. We didn't have this problem, uh, even as, as, you know, four or five years ago, because, you know, keto wasn't a boom yet. There wasn't a lot of companies that were out yet. Uh, there wasn't a lot of things out there yet. And now that we have a lot of people who, a lot of companies who have come in and, and tried to, you know, replace different foods with, with keto foods, you know, we, we do that here at perfect keto as well. Um, the, I love your comment. products, by the way. I, full disclosure, you know that's <laughs> how I got in touch with Dr. Gustin. I'm a big fan of Perfect. I take the ketones. I have your nootropics. Mm. I've, I've eaten your bars. Big fan. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know that's the the reason why I think people are starting to really um, really like what we're putting out is that we do try to focus on using whole food ingredients. And the problem with the, with more of these processed foods coming out is that the conversation has gone less to it's gone away from being about you know, nourishing your body. And it's just gone into, you just have to restrict your carbohydrates. So you get these companies that are just trying to, to, you know, use whatever ingredients they can that makes it so they can put low net carbs on their product. And, you know, people are, which thank God people are at least now flipping the package over and looking at the nutrition labels, right. but they're only looking at carbohydrates and nobody's looking at ingredients. And, yeah. uh, I think this is a huge Gu- problem. Guilty I'm- by the way, I do this. <laughs> I do that. I'm, I'm like, I'm, when I go to the grocery store, I'm focused on macros. I just want right. to make sure that, Oh, that looks good. I want to make sure it's not going to kick me out of ketosis. Yeah. And you know, the, the problem with, with taking that approach is, is like, if we, if we look at just a ketogenic diet, for instance, um, Say and even in research, this is one of the problems with looking at some research studies. Is, is say, say we're doing a research study right now, and and you and I are both subjects in this study, and uh, we're both prescribed to be on a ketogenic diet, and you're following a ketogenic diet where you're going out and you're buying, you know, grass-fed and finished local meats. You're having, uh, you know, organic vegetables. Oh, you're yeah. using, you know, coconut oil. You're you're you know following a very whole food, um, you know, well-balanced diet. And maybe my diet is, is I'm going to McDonald's, I'm removing the bun, I'm eating a bunch of processed dairy, I'm cooking right. my meat and vegetable oils or, or dining out and they're constantly cooking them in vegetable oils. Our macronutrients are both still where they need to be. We're going to have a much different response to those diets. And, yeah. you know, our cholesterol levels are going to be different. Our, you know, C-reactive protein, which is the, the common inflammatory marker, that's going to be different. There, We're going to have different responses there. And that's why, you know, we don't really talk about we, when we talk about, you know, keto dieting here at Perfect Keto, it's 
that conversation gets people really close to where they need to be. So that kind of becomes the default diet that we talk about. But really the, the diet that we want to recommend to people is a whole food diet. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not a huge proponent for plant-based dieting, but if you're going to follow a plant-based diet, you should be following a whole food plant-based diet. Now, it, you know, you look at any of these diets, if you look at a keto diet and if you're eating a keto diet that consists of pork rinds and processed nacho cheese, or you're eating a, you know, a plant-based diet where you're, you're consuming, you know, beyond meat where there's a bunch of canola oil and, uh, you know, vegetable oils and, and different things like that in there. Those aren't good diets. Those, right. those, it doesn't matter whether, if you call it plant-based, if you call it keto, low carb, that's not the way that we're supposed to be eating. Um, if you're, if you're sticking to eating whole foods, you're going to be doing yourself a big favor. And inevitably, if you're eating whole real foods, you're also going to be low carb. And, uh, you know, I think that kind yeah, of that, brings, that, it's, mm-hmm. it's it, most of our carbohydrate come from these heavily subsidized, uh, crops in our processed mm-hmm. foods to keep them cheaper. Yeah. Totally. Right? Yeah. I mean, and th- the thing is, it's like, we don't we don't sit here and say that we think that carbohydrates are bad. The problem is is that if you are if you've been overeating carbohydrates for a long period of time, you're insulin resistant. And that means that you are no longer able to effectively utilize or in the moment currently you are you're not able to effectively utilize carbohydrates. So for the majority of people who are suffering from if you're obese and you're trying to lose weight, if you're, you know, pre-diabetic, um, you know, and mostly any of the chronic conditions that are out there today are characterized by insulin resistance. Keto makes sense for you because you don't use carbohydrates any very well. So, you know, switching to a diet that is, you know, low in carbs and, and allowing you to produce different fuel sources like ketones and using fat for fuel, that makes the most sense for you. Now, for somebody who is who isn't insulin resistance, you might not have to go all the way to keto. Mm. But if you, you know, eating a whole food diet is going to keep you insulin sensitive because you're not going to be able to overeat carbohydrates on a whole food diet because the carbs aren't there to eat. Right. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a, an important distinction is like, you know, our, our conversation here is trying to meet people where they're at. And I think most people do need keto right now, but they might not need keto forever. And, you know, not everybody needs to go, you know, stay in ketosis hundred percent of the time or anything like that. The biggest thing that you need to do is just focus on eating whole foods. And if you do that, you're going to make a big difference in your health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is such a huge takeaway, uh, for me. Cause again, like I said, when I, when you first started, the, when I first started the ketogenic diet, there, it was only whole foods. That was the only mm-hmm. way you could, you could control the macros because all the processed food, again, you know, it, it uses, uh, our, our crops, wheat, soy, and corn that, that our government pays, uh, uh our farmers to grow extra. Yeah. Um, the uh so so this idea of of staying in ketosis and going in and out of ketosis like you just talked about like you don't need to be in it permanently um mm-hmm. and again you know just to remind everybody ketosis is a metabolic state it is a metabolic state defined by a certain concentration of ketones in your blood 0.5 millimolars per liter is sort of the accepted uh, floor for being in ketosis um but it's for me it's a it's a feeling for me it's i can feel like uh, I, I have a sense of when my body is processing fat because of the way my brain feels. I can just, mm-hmm. I can just tell. Um, and sometimes I'm a little bit wrong in terms of what my blood ketone levels are, but more or less, that's, that's how I, that's how I gauge it. Um, but wh- why, what is the benefit of going in and out of ketosis? Can we stay ketogenic all the time or, or is there a health benefit to, to getting out of it sometimes? Yeah, that's, that's another really great question. And, um, 
I will, I'll start off by saying that I, I do believe, and I haven't seen anything in the research to, that tells me otherwise, despite what most people will say, I, I haven't seen anything to tell me that staying in a state of ketosis long-term is bad for you. Okay. Um, you know, anecdotally, I, I've know it to be fine. Um, talking to a lot of people who have been doing it for a long time and that, you know, having no problems there. And then even looking at the mechanisms, there's no reason to think that it's dangerous to be in ketosis right. for a lot for long-term, but that doesn't mean that you have to be in ketosis all of the time. And I think the important thing to, to look at well, here is D'Agostino that, famously goes to Europe. He goes to Italy and eats pasta. Right, right. And you know what? Somebody like Dr. D'Agostino is probably back in ketosis the next day. Oh, yeah. And, For know, those of you that don't that's... know, Dr. D'Agostino is one giant slab of muscle yeah. uh, with, with the brain of a doctor inside of it. It's, it, <laughs> it, it, it I don't know how he exists, but he, yeah. Yeah, he's like, he's basically the Superman of, of the keto uh, community. Yep. Um, but yeah, like, you know, if you, if you're somebody who, like I always tell people, if you're starting the ketogenic diet and you know, for most people, when they cut, like come to a ketogenic diet, like when I started keto, it wasn't for weight loss. It, it was because I had heard that there was a lot of benefits about, you know, improving your brain function and things like that. So I gave it a try and I loved it and I stuck with it. But for most people, you know, I don't know the percentage, but a great majority of the people following keto, they're, they're coming there because there's some sort of damage they're trying to repair. There's some sort of metabolic damage. And for those people following and sticking to keto for, you know, a while is important because you're trying to repair the damage. You know, you can't repair 10, 12, 20, 50 years of damage in a month. That That's just not, it doesn't work like that. Right, so right, right. there is a lot of benefit to staying in ketosis so you can, you know, improve your mitochondrial function and, you know, and re repair your cells and, and do all of that type of stuff. But once you get to a point where, you know, you're, you're more insulin sensitive, uh, you become a little bit more metabolically flexible. And what that means is that you're able to kind of utilize carbohydrates better. Again, you, you can kind of go back and forth between different fuel sources. So, you know, like for me, if I consume, you know, tomorrow, uh, well, I'll take, for example, I was at a, I was at a wedding last weekend and, um, you know, it had, had some wine, um, had some, you Go know, had a little bit of the cake that was there. And then I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it definitely had some carbs, you know, wine, wine, cake. And I forget there was like maybe some sort of potato that I ate that was a part of the dinner too. And was it gnocchi? Um, was it gnocchi? Is that the potato? Uh, you know, I don't know. It might've been. Gnocchi is so good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, you know, I had those, we digress. Sorry. I just went to, we a, I went to a very nice place with carbs. Go ahead. <laughs> Everybody likes to have them every once in a while. Right. Yep. Um, so, you know, the next day I wake up and I test my, my blood ketones and I'm back into ketosis. And, and the, the thing here is that my, you know, because I have restored my metabolic, uh, health, my body is able to, to use those carbohydrates and get back to producing ketones very quickly. So what that, what that tells me is that I don't need to stay in ketosis all of the time. You know, my body can switch back and forth between different fuel sources so I can use carbohydrates strategically and strategically may mean using them to increase performance or strategically may mean I'm going on vacation to Italy and I want to have some pasta. So right. that's what I'm, that's what I I'm like going to have. I like that strategy. Um, right. <laughs> that's one of my favorites too. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely not in the camp of you get people who they're, they're so strict and they think that keto is the only way to be. And if you start keto, you have to stay keto forever. And it really sets this unrealistic expectation that I think actually scares people away from mm. the ketogenic diet. I mean, mm. I, I was having a conversation with a family member uh, just last weekend and they were, they had picked up the, uh, the book and they were reading it and they were like, well, you know, keto sounds great, but like, I don't think I can give up pizza forever. 
I was like, yeah. well, I don't think I can give up pizza forever either. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, you know, that's, that's not what we're, what we're asking you to do. And I think it's just giving the expectation that, you know, you can have carbohydrates again. And, you know, if you do keto the right way, you may even be able to better utilize those carbohydrates. Um, but the point is that we want to make sure that we're repairing our metabolism before we go back to using those carbs. And that when we do go back to, if we, we say we do decide to start incorporating carbs in our diets again, we're using them properly and we don't go back to, you know, chronically overeating them and, and overeating processed carbohydrates and that, you know, I think that's the, the most detrimental part is not, you know, people aren't overeating sweet potatoes. That's not what's causing people to right. it's uh, Oreos. have poor health. <laughs> it's Oreos. Yeah. 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 I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the, the conversation that we like to promote is that, you know, we don't think that keto or ketosis is an end all be all thing. Um, but we do think that it's a, probably a very important metabolic state for the majority of people in the essence of trying to meet people where they're at. Yeah. And I just, I mean, it, I, I, I think as a, as a society, Western society is in a, is in a carbohydrate glucose heavy, uh, nosedive. And we really need to pull back on that throttle and we really need to pull back on the, on the stick and, 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 and start pulling our, our diet out of this processed food, uh, plunge that we're in. And I think, I think keto is for some maybe an overcorrection, but for others, it's a really great way of of surviving that. Because what, what, something we haven't talked about, and we do have to wrap this up because I've kept you for a long time, and and you have to go, and, <laughs> and this has been a long interview. But um, one of the things we haven't really talked about is 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 just the um, the inflammation impact that that mm-hmm. that sugar has on our body. But as as ketones have gotten, as ketosis has gotten so much more popular. Uh, the the way that we test has also changed. Like it used to be, you could only get the blood strips that you would use mm-hmm. with your like diabetes precision extra. Uh, it also used, to, and then they they have the 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 urine strips that are. All, but I've I've heard mixed reviews of those. That really all it does is test to see how hydrated you are. One of the things that I've seen that's come out that intrigues me is the breathalyzer test. There's a mm-hmm. there's a breath thing you can you can blow into. Is that accurate? Yeah. So it's uh, I've been doing some. Ex- experimenting with the with the breath testing as well because you know you are measuring a different ketone when you're measuring your your breath versus when you're measuring in your blood so um and there there's some research that has come out that has suggested that they uh there's been some that has suggested that the two are pretty reliable they they both usually show pretty similar results when you're comparing you know breath to to blood and then there's also been some research that says that it doesn't so i've been testing uh, a little bit using uh, lately i've been using the keto device um, yeah which is it's it's a pretty cool device because it's uh, it's a kind of small pocket size you can bring it with you on the go and I've been comparing that to Keto Mojo which is the the blood glucose meter that I use and I've been seeing pretty consistent results um, you know showing uh, you know using the Keto device I think that they have like their own kind of algorithm where they kind of put you in like a medium or a high state of ketosis um, but it correlates pretty well with what I would consider to be in a medium or high state of ketosis or low state for that matter um, on the the blood meter. Um, but I still think right now, if you're, if you're really trying to get the best understanding of your, your blood ketones, I think that the, uh, the blood, like I said, I'm sorry, if you're trying to get the best indicator of your, your overall ketones, I think the blood ketones is going to be the best method. Um, just because I think that we, we have a better understanding of that. Um, but I will say as a caveat to that too, really any type of ketone testing is, it's a little bit tough to really interpret those results because you kind of made mention to it a little bit earlier in this conversation. You said that uh, sometimes you, the, your feeling that you have doesn't always match up with what your ketone levels say. Right. And well, you know, one of the things that we have to, to understand is that 
anytime we're measuring anything. So if we're measuring in the blood, we're measuring what's how much BHB is in the blood. Mm-hmm. And if we're testing breath, we're measuring what's being excreted through the breath. But what neither of those things tell us is how much ketones our cells are actually utilizing. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I've seen since you know, even since very early grad school when we were doing research on on students and ketogenic dieting, um, and, you know, anybody that I've talked to since then too, and, and even in myself, when you start a keto diet, your ketone levels go up pretty high. Um, but then as you continue following it, those numbers just, you know, they never quite stay or they never quite get back to as high as what they originally were unless yeah. you do some sort of like extreme fasting. Yes. And, you know, the reason why this is, is that the, like, our cells have a certain transporter. It's called the, the monocarboxylate transport, MCT transporter. And that's a transporter that is required uh, to allow ketones to enter our cells. And um, if you're somebody who, you know, we're all born in a state of ketosis, but, you know, with the way that our food system set up, that's usually about the last time we're in ketosis. As soon right. as we start introducing, uh, you know, solid foods, we, we're pretty much pretty carb heavy and, and we're not in ketosis again, um, with maybe the exception of just very minor states when we, we don't eat for a while. Um, but you know, it takes time because of that reason, it takes time for us to upregulate these MCT transporters so that ketones can actually be taken into our cells. So like when we look at something like, um, like breath ketones or, or blood ketones, that doesn't give us that same picture of how many we're actually utilizing. So Interesting. Um, my, you know, my favorite thing that you said, uh, d- during this talk was when you said that like, you like to go based off of feel. And, um, I think that's the, really the best approach somebody can take. I think using feel and correlating that with a measuring technique is the best approach because if you're not in a state of ketosis, I mean, your brain, it can't use fat for energy. So your brain can only use ketones and glucose for fuel. Fat just to, just, yeah. Just a reminder that, that your, um, that your, your body will always go down the path of least resistance just so people mm-hmm. know. So if you have carbohydrates in your system, it will always use that first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the, your, your brand can't use fat. So if you're not eating carbs and you test your blood sugar and your blood sugar is like 70, uh, and, and you're testing low ketones, but you're, you feel great. You're in a state of ketosis. Like your brain is metabolizing ketones. Cause if it wasn't, you would know you would, you would feel like, heck, you know, you'd have no yeah. energy. You'd be fatigued. You'd probably have a really poor mood. Um, so I think that the feeling is great, but what I always tell people is that I think you should, take note of how you feel and, and the benefits of ketosis, which, you know, more energy, feeling cognitively enhanced, uh, better mood, whatever, right. and correlate that with what your blood readings say, because then that can allow you to understand what's your optimal ketone range. Cause you hear people say, you know, Oh, where should I be with my ketone levels? Well, you know, it depends. Like for me, I found that, um, you know, I, I find myself normally at about 0.7 to 0.8. And I really notice a big cognitive boost if I get up to like 1.1 to 1.3. So because I know that, I can say, okay, well, I know that MCTs will get me to about 1.1. And I know that using exogenous ketones will get me to about 1.5. So I can use these strategies to kind of uh, find, you know, to achieve the goal. So like in the case of writing this book, if I want my brain to be performing the best, when I'm sitting down and writing it, I'm going to do whatever strategy I, I have in my tool belt to get my ketones to my personal optimal range, range yeah. for brain yeah. function, you know? So that's kind of where I think is important with ketone testing is, is you shouldn't just take these numbers at face value. You should also associate them with how you feel. Right, right. Uh, that's really smart. Well, I mean, I've taken up so much of your time. Chris Irvin, uh, co-author of the book Keto Answers, which is, you know, if, if it literally is if you have questions about keto, about the ketogenic diet, you want to get started, you've been doing it for a while, and you feel lost at times uh, with the abundance of information that's out there, and like like we talked about earlier, misinformation, you need to get this book. 
I I love it. I've been I've been flipping through it since since we scheduled this interview. It is fantastic. Um, so you, you you know definitely worth checking out. Uh, if people want to follow up with you, uh, wh- wh- where can they where can they follow up with you, Chris? Yeah, so I have um, I'm pretty much on every social media platform, but I think um, the best approach if you uh, you know I respond to all of my DMs on Instagram. So uh, if you have questions, that's always a, a place that you can go and get them answered. So that's at the Ketologist. Um, and then I also have a, a website that has like my personal blog and, you know, I do a bunch of, of different articles and, and things like that. And that's at, um, that's the ketologist.com. So those would be the two best places to see more of my work. Link is, to the book is in the show notes, as well as a link to Chris's social media and the ketologist.com. I'm also going to throw a link to perfect keto in there. Um, it's how I got started with these guys. Uh, it's, it's, you, you do a lot of work with Dr. Gustin on that on that as well, correct? Yeah, so I'm the uh, education manager here at Perfect Keto, so I'm I'm in charge of uh, doing you know all the research and uh, you know trying to put education out for our customers and and for our employees and getting everybody up to speed on on what the science says. So yeah, I'm I'm actually uh, sitting here at the Perfect Keto office right now with everybody. Oh, I, I want to come by the Perfect Keto office. I want to. <laughs> it's I wanna pretty check, great here. Yeah, I want to <laughs> I want to sample your new goods. I want to. Oh, is that is that a caramel corn flavor uh, exogenous ketone supplement for fall? I want to check it out. Uh, so links to all of those spots, uh, in, in the show notes as well, you know, you'll find a great place to get, uh, exogenous ketones, um, so that if you want to feel what it feels like to be in ketosis, that's a great way to get started, uh, is to, is to boost your blood ketone levels with, with these supplements. Uh, one last thing, and I ask it to everybody that's on the show, what is one thing people can start doing today that will make their lives a whole lot better? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, eating whole foods. So, uh, I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yep. <laughs> That's always my number one answer. Cut, cut the processed stuff. Uh, uh, stick to whole foods. If you're eating something that has uh, a lot of ingredients in it and you're not sure what those ingredients are, I would not eat it uh, or at least very limited. And I think that'll make big improvements to your health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've definitely felt that. Uh, all right. Well, th- thank you so much for your time today. And, you know, there's, I, I, we didn't get to talk about dairy. I wanted to talk about dairy. We haven't even really talked about dairy that much. We haven't even talked. We have, there's a, there's so much more to talk about. So hopefully you'll come back on the show and we can talk more. Yeah, we'll have to do a follow up. I'll be happy to do that. Well, that's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you like Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Really, honestly, that helps us out more than anything else. The subscribe thing is, is is huge. Also, tell a friend. If they are interested in the ketogenic diet, share this episode with them or one of our 800 other episodes about the ketogenic diet. 800 is hyperbole. We don't have that many, but we do have a lot, so you can check them out in our, in our archives. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Check out, follow up with John, uh, who is not on the show today, facebook.com slash John Tesh. It's where we spend most of our time. We post videos, we go live, we do all kinds of stuff over there. Also, John is on Twitter at John Tesh, on Instagram at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. You can find me all over the internet, facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. I try to respond to every comment or post that you guys put about the show uh, in order to make the show better and more like what you guys want to listen to. Because again, we can't do this without you, uh, which is why I always say thank you so much for listening. <laughs>